Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there, but I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at ProMotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A-techs, B-techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. ProMotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment. Check them out at gopromotive.com slash Jeff. gopromotive.com slash Jeff. Just think, you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job. good thing about this industry is you're always needed people always need people even if it's not necessarily automotive mechanics directly it's something related to the fact that i can use my hands to fix things exciting thought-provoking episode of the Jada Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here with um, Kenny Wessel, a good friend of mine. Kenny has a YouTube channel called uh, Wrench with Kenny, who I found Kenny's channel about uh, three months ago, I guess. And, you know, you all that know me on the Jaded Mechanic podcast, you know I'm kind of a nerd for YouTube and uh, social media content and stuff like that. And um, we're, in, we're at ASTE 2023 down here in North Carolina, and Kenny's local. I so am now. <laughs> I, so I reached out to Kenny and I said, well, you know, are you able to make the conference, the, the, the big training thing? And he's like, I, I can't make the whole training thing. And I said, well, come by on Saturday then. And um, I'll show you around, introduce you to a bunch of people. And we'll, we'll knock an episode out. And we're, we're, as you know, we're about trying to tell people stories and try to give Kenny's platform uh, and his, you know, his channel a little bit more push. So, Kenny, introduce yourself and kind of get us started here on what you're talking about and how you feel. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Ken Wessel. I got a uh, YouTube channel called Wrenching with Kenny. I started it about two years ago, and um, it kind of snowballed. Yeah. And, and like I never really expected it. I just kind of did it for fun. Originally, I did it because when I moved away from New York, my son was asking me how to fix something, and I figured it was actually easier for me to make a video of how to fix it. Yeah. So I did that, and he said, you know, that's actually pretty good. You should think about throwing it up on YouTube or something similar. Right. So I was like, all right. So I started recording a couple of videos, and if you look at my first videos, they're 
not very good. Listen to my first podcast. <laughs> They're not very good. And um, one of my daughters, I have five daughters and a son. Wow. My one daughter, she says to me one day, and I, because I actually almost gave up on it. And my one daughter said, hey, you know, that one video you got is going somewhere. I go, what do you mean? She goes, have you looked to see where it's at? I said, yeah. no. So I looked and I mean, my videos were, you know, 50, 60, 70 views. And all of a sudden this one had 10,000 views. Mm-hmm. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. Next thing I know it's at 20,000. Then it's at 100,000. So yeah. I'm like, wow, okay, I'm getting traction here. So at that point I started doing more and more videos and, um, it just kind of snowballed from there, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you reached out to me. Motormouth Radio reached out to me. It's it's been it's been pretty cool. You did the Motormouth just a couple weeks ago, wasn't I it? I did it last Sunday. Yeah, yeah, because I was up in New York. It, it actually happens out in Long Island, right? And um, I had to go up there anyway. I visited my mom, one of my daughters, and uh, my son, mm-hmm. and um, so I went out there to do the radio show, and I helped a friend of mine who happened to be moving down to the area, so. We got moved down here from that, but that that was the reason for me being up there in the first place. Anyway, right. was just a visit, and because um, that's where I'm from, right? So yeah, because you just moved recently to North Carolina, right? So you left a shop up around it in New York. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. B and M Auto Body. Okay. Uh, I left there. I worked at a dealer for 21 years, Chrysler dealer. Yeah. I left there to help a friend of mine at his body shop. Uh, he was going through some medical issues, and. Um, so I helped him with his shop while he got through what he needed to get through. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I was there for about three years and then left from there. Uh, my wife and I just decided to, you know, all the kids are grown up. Let's do something different. Yep. And we decided to move down to the coast of North Carolina, you know, near, not at Myrtle Beach, but like kind of close. You know, we were actually in North Carolina, not South Carolina. Yeah. And we were there for about three years and we decided this isn't the place for us. So three of our daughters actually live relatively close to here, and we're like, let's start looking in that area. So we started looking. We just happened to find a house that fit what we wanted, and uh, next thing you know, here I am mm-hmm. <laughs> up in this area. So, um, what year did you start? What was your first kind of? Was your first job as a as a technician, or way back then, maybe they would have called it a mechanic? I actually started when I was in middle school. Believe it or not. Um, on my walk to school, mm-hmm. there was a shop. I don't recall the name of it, but they did. I, I think they called it black market cars at the time, where they took cars. They took Mercedes. That's what they specialized in. They okay. took Mercedes Benz from Germany, shipped them over here, and then made them meet the U.S. standards. Right. So at that shop, I actually learned how to weld, and I will never call myself a welder because mm-hmm. I am not. I learned how to do some welding. I learned how to do some wiring. Uh, they taught me quite a bit. Yep. Um, and I was there for a couple of months. I didn't even have a driver's license at the time. I was there for a couple of months, and um, then I went into high school, and I couldn't. I just couldn't work, not at that place, because it just it was too out of the way for me. Right. And um, so then in high school, I just kind of did my own stuff, and then I worked at a couple of shops kind of as like a gas pumper, mm-hmm. uh, but I would help out in a shop. And uh, one shop, the guy even said to me, why are you pumping gas? You actually, <laughs> you know, I'm, I was 16, I think. And he said, you know more than my mechanic knows. Wow. So I was like, okay. So he had me come in the shop and I wound up doing, I remember it was a old, I think it was a 67, 68, 69 Barracuda oh, nice. with four wheel drum brakes. Yeah. It was just a plain Jane. And I wound up doing a four wheel brake job on it. And he was amazed that this kid could do this 
better and faster than the guy he had as a mechanic. Right. So it kind of went from there. Um, when I got out of high school, there was a shop up the street. They were looking for uh, a helper in the shop. So I was like, ah, all right. So I applied there. They hired me. And originally I was cleaning bathrooms and sweeping the floors, dumping the garbage, <laughs> you know, helping with oil changes, you know, yep. helping rotate tires, stuff like that. And they quickly realized I knew more than they, they thought I knew. Right. And I, and I didn't sell myself. Yeah. You know, I, that's not who I am. And um, I wound up, next thing I know, um, side by side with their mechanic. And their mechanic, his name was Richie, Richie Cashigano. And he taught me an awful lot. Yeah. Uh, he taught me the right and wrong way. Even though I could do drum brakes, he taught me the right and wrong way to do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, he taught me quite a bit. He taught me how to do head gaskets, and he was really good. And I come to find out, he was only a couple of years older than I wow. was at the time. Yeah. Um, but I stayed there for uh, four years, and it was it was a good shop, North Broadway Auto Service in North White Plains, New York. Nice. And uh, from there, I actually wound up uh, getting my own shop. So I had my own shop for seven years. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately. I had leased the property. Yep. I tried to purchase the property because I knew it was coming up for sale. But the guy who had the shop next door to me, I guess, he knew the owner better than I did. He wound up buying the property. So all of a sudden, my rent went from $2,500 a month to $5,000 a month. He's obviously trying to force you. He was out. forcing me yeah. out. So I couldn't afford that. Yeah. So at that point, I left and went to the dealership world. Because I had two small children at the time. And I was like, you know what? I need to have a job now. Mm -hmm. So the Chrysler dealer down the road, they were hiring. Right. So I got a job with them. That was my first experience in the dealer world. Right. And uh, it was actually my first experience with a two-post lift. Because mm -hmm. my shop had in-ground lifts. Right. Yeah. I started on one of them still in, <laughs> in 2001. They still had, I was working in a shop that had a big in ground okay and it was it was scary because you know it was it would come rocking it out of the floor so fast right yeah the old but, air over hydraulic <laughs> yeah and and you could i remember still remember being like you spin the car you know on the top and yep. like it, it it would leak down so we had to live locks and yep. it was just it was trash but when you um so um when you walked into the dealership mm -hmm. at any of the shops you've been to before had you ever worked like how was your pay set up uh, everything was hourly. Hourly. Everything was hourly. Yeah. And the first shop that I really worked at, uh, the one that right out of high school, that shop, um, it was hourly. And I remember he had bonuses, like depending on what jobs you got done. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, it, it was a great place to work. It really was. I, I, I enjoyed that as a, as a beginning experience mm -hmm. and I would, I would call that my real beginning experience as as a mechanic. Right. But then when I went to the dealership, it was flat rate. Yeah. Which that was my first ever experience with with flat rate. So can I ask what they were paying you at the hourly? What kind of rates were you talking about back then? I know it's hard to remember that far back, eh? I want to say, because this was 1980. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry, 1997. I'm sorry, 1997. And I want to say it was, I think I started at 16 an hour. Right. I think. Uh -huh. Flat rate. <coughs> um, but yeah, we started at 16 an hour. Uh, but I could make money. Yeah. I could make money there. I, I would, you know, in the beginning, working flat rate was so unusual for me. Yeah. 
But once I got used to it, I, I could make money. Was, and you were telling me, so you, we were reminiscing about some of the old models that, that I had seen, you know, because you're, you're older than me, but we kind of probably were in, we've probably put wrenches to a lot of the same cars, right? Yep. Um, you loved the neons you were talking yes. about. And the, you started, so kind of, I want to say the OBD1 LH kind of Intrepids, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the old 300s, that, that kind of stuff. Like, I can remember seeing them and... and Luckily, by the time I was working on them, when I started in like, you know, 2000, they were, the OBD ones anywhere out of warranty. So yep. they were great. They were paying good. Yep. And um, you talked about the 604 transmissions. You did mm-hmm. a pile of those, right? Yep. And I said, oh yeah, up in the wintertime, we'd, we'd always like look for icy roads because, you know, somebody go to pull out of their driveway, bald front tires and throw that pin right through the case, right? Yep. Yep. And we loved that because it was such a moneymaker. Like it was, but you... So you you kind of cut your teeth on the on Chrysler, same as me, mm-hmm. and you said you loved the neons and you know oh the neons were great they yeah. were as a technician they were money makers because mm-hmm. you got so used to fixing them. <coughs> I apologize for that. Yeah, I don't know what. A, it's okay. Um, you get so used to doing you know the head gaskets that would leak oil yeah. and timing belts and stuff like that. They were just absolute money makers. Yeah, yeah, and then and I I always remember them like. Well, I told the story. I worked with a guy. I told you the story. They had some piston knock in the first generation yes. ones, right? That which we it was the running joke as well. Every character, a K car, or the two two platform that ever been built, right? The previous one, every one of them had a piston knock. That yep. was just how you knew a K car or any of the Chrysler's come by because it knock 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 knock. knock and you could yep. hear it coming by. Yeah, but and they, they would last forever though. Oh, they ran forever like that. And I can remember him, the my foreman, my mentor at the dealership. I remember him doing four pistons in a neon in an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> and because uh, I was putting, like I told you the story, I was putting a heater core in my 1980 GMC truck. We were both staying there late after after work. And um, I'm putting a heater core in an 80 GMC half done that I was driving every day in like 2002, 2001. And he drove an ACR neon. Okay. Right? And it was, he had a really ghetto nitrous setup, just a basic, you know, like... Uh, you know, he let the knock sensor on the factory side control okay. the detonation and he yep. would just, you know, he'd pour a hundred shot to it through some fabbed up stuff right into the air box above the throttle body and away he'd go. And wing it from there. And wing it from there. And he beat a lot of fast <laughs> Hondas, a lot of fast <laughs> Volkswagens. We're talking 2001, right? We're talking before the Fast and the Furious thing kind of kicked off. Yep. It was because it was Ottawa. It was a bigger city. It was kind of, it started to have an underground following. And I moved to Ottawa. I'm like, what is all this front wheel drive? stuff yeah you know i mean i i'd grown up in uh my father was a collision tech so i'd grown up and my dad always restoring cars in our in our backyard crash so you know we we always had a mustang around or he put lots of rear quarters and trunk floors in a, in a camaro so there was always some pretty cool stuff around and uh when i come up there i'm like what's all this front wheel drive stuff and i was a hot rod magazine kid from the yep. time i was probably 12 years old all I did was read Hot Rod Magazine, Popular Hot Rodding. Carcraft was like my Bible, right? Those guys, when they got onto the idea of like, how can I rebuild a small block Chevy for, you know, beer money and make it, you know, make 300 right. horsepower. That was all I wanted to do yep. was, was, you know, work on a small block Chev. So when I saw this front wheel drive stuff, I'm like, that can't be fast. And then he took yeah. me for a ride in that Neon and I'm like, that's friggin' wicked. Yep. You know, it was so cool. So he was uh, he was a great mentor in terms of how to work in a dealership uh, for 
for repetition, pattern failure, mm-hmm. learning how to, for all intents and purposes, how to make money. You know, yep. how to take an oil change ticket and and do a proper inspection on the car or know the product well and be able to say, okay, well, you know, she's here for an oil change, but also the car's got some control arm bushings that are shot. And, you know, that was my first exposure to that because the yep. shop that I'd been in before, if the customer didn't come in complaining about it, if it wasn't going to break on the way home, if it wasn't going to leave them stranded on the way home, you didn't really push to sell it because, oh, they don't have any money. Yep. You know? And that's and that's what happened even when I had my shop. You didn't push to sell anything. Yeah. But when you get to the dealership level, yeah, you're pushed to sell. And they used to get aggravated with me because I didn't try to push stuff that was, you know, maybe not, I don't know if the wording is correct, but it's not that it wasn't necessary, but it wasn't detrimental to the car at this point in yeah. time so it's like yeah mention it yeah. you know hey in the future it's not like you need it right now right so yeah it's tough though yeah. right because we you know you've seen the kind of we were talking off air the proliferation of like people doing more dvis digital visual vis, digital vehicle inspections yes and you know like mine at the process where i'm at my shop now it's nothing to take 20 photos of a car mm-hmm. the master cylinder reservoir the washer fluid the wipers the you know you turn the key on, you dash lights up, any warning lights that are sitting around and fo- document that, photograph yep. that. Um, but I can remember back in the day, everything was a handwritten work order. Yep. I used to write down, bushings are shot, brakes are shot. You yep. know, that was, it was just shot, shot. Yeah, shot. Control <laughs> arm bushings are shot, ball joint, shot. And then I would whip that to the, to the service advisor and it was his job to go and look up the parts, look up the labor, right? Come to me and say, is that labor enough? Yes or no? And by then, I was already pulling another car in. Yep. That's how I. That's how we worked it, right? I was saying earlier today, I did so much diag in, when I was at the dealer in the parking lot because I would have a bay tied up yep. waiting on a brake job for approval. And <coughs> we, we'd have one towed in, and and it's immediately like, you know, oh, I put myself on hold and I'll go grab that tow in, right. you know, and see what's going on because I don't – and then when I got two bays – it just was the same thing. I was constantly always like the wheels are off and the brakes are shot. The rack and pinions leaking. The control arms are shot. The struts are shot, whatever. Right. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I used to watch guys that, and, and this is some people may not agree. Our transmission guys, when you, when you, when you and I talked about the 604s, um, they'd pull the tranny. And if it had bad struts when they were pulling it, well, they sold the strut job. Yep. And that was a, like, you want to talk about some lucrative overlap. Oh, yeah. There was some good money there, Absolutely. right? Because you're, how much of that stuff's already out of the way anyway to do the transmission? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're doing the struts. So I, the first time I was ever seeing guys, like, hit 80 and 100 hours in a week were our transmission guys. Yep. You know, and then the trannies started to get better for Chrysler. Yeah. And they didn't start to make so much money, you know. But, so you stayed there quite a while. Yeah, 21 years. Yeah. was total. Long time. Yeah, I left the first dealer after about a year because the dealer that was actually closer to my house was hiring. Mm-hmm. So I made the switch. So I was a grand total, it was almost 22 years Yeah, but uh, between the two. So Did that, you do any work on the Vipers? No. Uh, we had, I don't think I could fit in one, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had uh, two guys that were dedicated Viper guys. Yeah. Uh, but the shop kind of split itself up. To where we had two guys that were really good with diesels. Mm-hmm. So they would kind of get, even even though I'm diesel certified now, right. two guys that were really good diesels, they would get diesels. Um, 
You had another guy who was really good with tranny, so he would have a tendency to get more tranny work, even though, you know, I would get tranny work too, but he would get more of it than I would. Yep. I would get, it seemed a little more of the drivability type issues, the electrical weird issues. Yeah. So I always had something apart with wiring harness issues. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a know. Chrysler after all, yeah. right? I yep. lived in the Bay. I always had a DRB3. Yep. There's a flashback for you, right? Mm-hmm. I always had a DRB3 and a harness open somewhere. Yep. Always, all the time. It seemed like that thing. Once it was in my hand, I never, I never put it down. <laughs> my, my, I started, I started second shift at a dealership, um, and uh, so second shift was I came in at ten in the morning and I worked till eight at night. Oh, okay, and I was hourly because I wasn't yet what we call up in Canada certified. So if if you weren't certified, normally you're paid hourly, and you're paid a lot less hour right. than what you'd make as flat rate, and. Um, so because I was hourly, they started giving me at first a lot of the programming recalls. Mm-hmm. So there used to be like, I can still remember there was a Grand Cherokee recall for testing the, essentially whether the system would vent through okay. the filler neck. And there was a long thing. You had to go down and then you had to run through the, the vent test with this probe down the fuel tank, open up the flapper valve, make sure that it would work, and then blah, blah, blah. That was the first time anybody handed me a scan tool and, cause, and a TSB and said, here, go do this bulletin. And you remember the TSBs then, it would lay out, go yeah. to screen or whatever, DRV3, hit this function. Yep. And, well, then, of course, hourly, when you you start to play with the tool, what else mm-hmm. would the DRV3 do? Yep. Before And before long, within probably four months, I was the guy at the second shift. So after 5 o'clock at night, when all the regular techs, the hour, the guys went home, they were just giving me one check engine light after another, one one programming problem after another. Because I was, I could navigate the tool. A lot of okay. these guys are on the second shift with me. They didn't get Chrysler training. They didn't get, and they were flat rate. So for them to come in was like, this is a customer for tires. This is a customer for brakes. Maybe there's a, a used car to recondition. Right. But they didn't give me a lot of that stuff. So I very quickly learned that tool and what it would do. And then I could navigate the service information. And so we started to get where, say, a guy did a check engine light in the daytime. 10 o'clock in the morning, customer leaves. Customer comes back 6 o'clock at night, check engine lights back on. Well, I was still there till 9 o'clock that night. Right. So they gave me that comeback because I was hourly. Right. Didn't, didn't matter. Ma- didn't matter to you. And I'd go in and it was like simple things like, well, there's a broke wire, you know. I mean, and I don't mean simple in the sense that it's just a broke wire, but you'd unplug the, you know, vent solenoid. Not vent solenoid. You know what we called yeah. it back then. But, well, there's no power at it. And then, yeah. so it had a brand new shiny one on it. The guy put it on that day. But then I would just, you know. Yeah, being flat rate, he would throw a part on because that's the most common failure. Kick it outside because he only got 0.6 for his diag. And yep. then that part might only pay like 0.4 to put it in, right? Because yep. it's right there. Yep. And, you know, he was always trying to get, I need the brake job that's going to pay me four hours. Yep. You know, the drivability. So I quickly kind of at least learned the pattern failures, the weak points on the product line. Right. I thought I was pretty sharp. But the reality is I just knew the product well, right? And we'll get into that. Yep. So when I went and and moved dealerships, the next dealer I was at, I, I was flat rate. And I was scared to death. I was worried. Because, like, you know, I'd done some head gaskets on a neon, but I wasn't banging them out in 45 minutes. I was slow. I was meticulous. I was, like, mm-hmm. you know, I was doing them the way that, you know, school had taught me how it was supposed to be done. Yep. You know. No, so I so I was never an R and R kind of whiz in terms of speed. I could do it, 
but I wasn't like, it's just always seemed to be from the time I had a DRB3 in my hand, somebody just started giving me more of those electrical problems, more of that drivability problems. And, you know, I ran with it. I took it as a great opportunity. So, you know. Well, especially being hourly, that, that actually worked to your benefit. Yeah. Because I was always flat rate. And it's so, you know, I'd want to learn more about it. But it's like, as soon as I got done with something, I got something else. Yeah. And then next thing you know, it's the end of the day. And it's like, I want to learn a little bit more. But I can't. I gotta go home. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, you know, my my wife would get a- not angry, but like, you coming home? Yeah, like, <laughs> no, I'm oh. still trying to figure something out. There's lo- and yeah. there was lots of nights like that. I was there yeah. seven, eight at night, yep. right? Because our sales department would be open until nine. Yep. And all the other techs had gone home, and I'm there trying to figure out a check engine light. Or I'm there trying to figure out why, you know, after it gets hot, it won't run for shit. Mm-hmm. And I'm what? And and I'd be just, I had keys, you know, come in, leave, work. Whatever. Yep. Nobody cared. And it was a lot of that. I wasn't getting paid for that. I was off the clock. But I was one of those stubborn, you know, SOBs that's like, I got to know what's yeah, wrong with you, this. you want to know. That's yeah. And you know what it's like at the dealership. If you think it's a camp sensor, well, there's another caravan two bays over. Exactly the same. You pull that out of there. Jam it in your, or you go get one of the sales lot, right? The trade-ins yep. or whatever. Pull it out of that. Put it in that car. Go drive it. Oh, same thing. It ain't that. Yep. You know. And, and so, swap Gnostics you know, is a very, still a very real thing that happens. And you know what? It's a very viable way sometimes when we talk about, if I can change that sensor in, in two minutes, yep. right? Why am I not just going to do that? You know what I mean? Like if, if on, a, on a car that I'm lost. Now, if I got one code and, and it's given me a symptom and I can, I can diagnose the code. But if you're trying to figure out why it's laying down at 55 miles an hour, right. you know, when it's hot intermittently, and you can't get this, the, the, it's not giving you a code, and you're naming not catching it on the scanner, yep. you're going to try that, you know? Yep. So no fault, no hate on the guys that do it that way. But so I, I had a video, I don't remember which one it was, but it was like, I, I came across a problem, and it's like, I know what the problem is going to be. It's going to be this. So, mm-hmm. And I changed it, and I, and I said, I'm not going to diagnose this. I'm going to change the part. Yes, I'm yep. loading the part shotgun. Yep. Yes, I'm changing the part. And it fixed it. And then somebody made a comment uh about like, oh, you're not doing too much wrenching, you know, as wrenching with Kenny. And it's like, yeah, I, I kind of explained that. And it's yeah. like, and you can't do it all the time. You know, sometimes nope. you just know, hey, this is what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it does come from experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, swap Gnostics is, is definitely a viable way of doing things. Prefer not to do it if, if yeah. possible, but if you know what it's going to be, yeah. why not? And we still have to, we have to add that, that <laughs> reference in that we're not saying to put the part on it didn't fix it. Leave the part and build a customer. No, and try absolutely another one. not. We're not trying to say that. We're trying to say, you know, if you if the crank sensor, how many of those did you change in your career? Oh, <laughs> can't can't even tell you. <laughs> right? You get in and you just know what. Like it starts fine every morning when it's cold, and then he drives down to the. You know, he drives twenty minutes to work. He stops to get a cup of coffee. Comes out and the thing won't start, and it's just cranking over. You know, and then he comes out at the end of the day. And it starts up and fires home, he drives it home, and it goes on and on and on. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe you get a 320 DTC in there. Yep. But even if you can, and it, you know, you don't have, we, our initial diag was 36 minutes. <coughs> 0.6, right? So it was 0.6 was what we were allotted for DRB test initial diag. And you knew it's going to be an hour of me driving this thing, getting it hot yeah. before I may be able to recreate it. And I don't have a fault, but it's a Magnum 5.9, in a Dakota yeah. or Ram or whatever. It's getting one. Yep. And, you know, it fixed it. 
Yep. Right? And, and you know, the transmission guys, I've seen more than one knock it when they're taking the tranny out, right? They hit yep. the thing. Yep. They so that was crack it or yeah. just snap it completely off. Yeah. I've seen so that. we've seen that where it's like if it just had a tranny out and then all of a sudden it's got an intermittent <coughs> no start, it's... It's um, it's getting one, you know, and people, you know, you probably saw it. Everybody said way back in the day, Chrysler ECMs were jar- garbage. Like we used to put mm-hmm. ECMs in all the time. I honestly didn't see that. I didn't either. I saw a lot of wiring harness problems. Yep. Right. A lot of connector issues. Tip them, tip thems Right. Were you there when that was just? Were you already gone by that was starting to roll out or the tip thems Yeah. No, no, I was there for that. Yeah. Yeah, tip thems were a problem. Yeah. Um. <laughs> But I can't tell you how many times I've seen people blame a PCM or a BCM or whatever, TCM, and it's not the problem. Yeah. And it's like, did you really diagnose the issue? No. You know, it's no. easy to blame on. I hate, I hate coming up with that conclusion. Yeah. When I come up with a, with a PCM being bad, I wind up going through the test three times. Yep. I want to make sure that, that, did I do everything right? Did I cover the bases? Because it is kind of uncommon for it to be a failure. Yeah. But, um. But everybody it, used to say, oh, Chrysler yeah. ECMs are the worst. Nah, I, I didn't see that. I always found GM, after I got in the aftermarket, built a way worse, yeah. you know, control engine control module than, than Chrysler ever thought about doing. Well, it's funny, too, because people would complain about Chrysler's, oh, you know, like the Dodge Omnis, remember those mm-hmm. things? People mm-hmm. would say, oh, they're just throwaway cars, they're junk. Yeah. My dad had one to 400,000 miles on it. Do you remember the GLHs, the yeah. Golic Hells? Yeah. Were they not something, eh? Oh, they were fun. Oh, and I, I remember... Um, you probably remember I, I had a, a 1990 Dodge Shadow. I did too. With a 2.5 turbo in it. I did too. And I mean. <laughs> and a five-speed. Yeah. Oh, see, I had an automatic. Yep, five-speed. I had a sunroof, and I thought I was the. And so I was driving that in probably 2003. I thought that was the, the coolest little car I'd ever yeah. owned in my life. And fast. Yeah. They were it fast. wasn't slow. No, they are fast little buggers. You know, and, and I loved it. It was like, it was, a, it was the coolest little car. Now. Once the injectors all started to leak like they did as they got older, mm-hmm. and it was getting to be harder to, to find an injector, um, was what I wanted to pay for one. Right. You know, I didn't want, I was like, I can, I'm not going to put a used injector in it. And they're like, you want $100 for an injector? Yeah. Oh, I'll just get rid of the car. Yeah. I just gave it to a friend of mine. <laughs> There's a really cool story. I've told it before. We had a Dodge Shadow come in in probably 19, it was probably 2005. I want to say like a 98 Shadow came in. Wouldn't run. And it wound up in the bay next to me. And uh, the guy is over there. It's cranking over and it's not firing up. And he pulls out a compression gauge. And he pulls out the first spark plug that goes to number one. He screws the gauge in. He bumps the key over and cranks it up. Doesn't build any compression. He goes out to the advisor and he says, um, the head gasket or the engine is bad. The guy's like, customer. So they call the customer. Yeah, you got low comp- you should do some advanced uh, assessment, some diag. And they're like, well, we've had the car like, you know, eight years. It's been a money pit. We're just going to get rid of the car. Now, we kind of had been looking, him and I, back and forth at the history of the car, and it had a, a recent transmission rebuild in it. It had some other parts on it, and I'm thinking, my friend needs that transmission. So I went out to the advisor and I said, can I buy that car from them? I have a friend that needs a transmission. They're like, yeah. So I said to them, I said, what's their bill? 200 bucks. I paid the bill. So the next day, so the car's outside. He pushes outside. This was when I was just starting to actually think about how to diagnose things from a different way. 
The car's sitting outside, and I'm cranking it, and it sounds nice and even, but it won't fire it up. And this is an old, like this, uh, it won't, it won't fire it up. And it's, you know, I'm looking at data, and I'm like, that's weird. So I go and get, remember the inline spark testers? Yes. Right? So I got, <coughs> I had it for it. <coughs> right? So the old 2-2, I take the wires off the coils. I put the inline spark tester between the ignition wire and each plug. Mm-hmm. And I'm cranking it over, and it's only firing on two cylinders. I thought. That's weird. So take the distributor cap off real quick. I lift that plate up. You've seen it. There's the yep. reluctor, right? Yep. Pieces of reluctor laying in the bottom of the distributor. I bought a junk air distributor for $50 that afternoon. The next this we're on to the next day. Put it in, right? And you know how easy that is. There's hardly mm-hmm. any time or anything like yep. that. And was sitting there doing burnouts and donuts out in the parking lot. <laughs> and I sold that car to my buddy for $900. And he then drove it for another three years. Wow. So why you're asking me, well, why does it have low compression? The Schrader valve in the end of his hose was junk. I've, I've done that. Yeah. I've done that. So, you know, and I, that's not me ripping on somebody else. It's just that was one of the first times that I learned, wow, he's an older tech than me. He's got a lot more experience than me. And he brain farted. Yeah. His process is different than mine. Yep. You know. And uh, that's not me throwing shade on anybody. That's just a situation of, you know, we all have a brain fart. And, um, you know, it it was, that's when my boss kind of looked at me and he said, you kind of understand what you're doing with this stuff, eh? And I'm like, I think I am. And uh, it just whirlwind from there. You know, it was, it was, I can remember when the the wireless control modules, when they went to that fob key came in, Mm -hmm. you know, they'd come in off the, we'd, we'd PDI them and a month later, customer would be driving them and then all of a sudden it would tow in no configuration in a car completely yeah. gone and we're like and i remember the first couple ones i just restored config i didn't know why it went but i just hooked it up to ytech yep restored the complete configuration in the car and it start to work again and then it'd be gone it might go two months this time and then it would same thing happen yep. again until he finally phoned tech line 1-800-361-2702 right that's how many times did i call that yep. the number still memorized it's probably changed by now 5850 was my dealer code. Okay. And and you talk to them, you're like, what is going on with this? And they'd be like, so we've had a few rash of these at, you know, dealers all over Canada and the U.S. Um, they're finding that the wireless control modules are bad. And then, don't yeah, you know, eventually again. they recalled the yep. stupid things. You know, you ended up getting a, a whim. And then next to you got a whim and two keys. Yep. Right? But I was doing them like they were going on a style. Yep, I remember you know, that. It was... It was so cool. So, and I mean, I love that product. I love the three liter. I love the three liters and the vans. I made so much money on them. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the PT Cruisers, I hated. <laughs> I think everybody hated them. They were fast, the, the turbo one. Yep. Fun little car to drive. But I, I I hear other guys say it too. And that to me is the worst timing belt I've ever done in my life is a, is a 2.4 turbo PT Cruiser. It Yeah, it's one of the worst. Yeah. That and a power steering pump. You ever do a power steering pump? Oh, so I. <laughs> I have a, here's a story about a power steering pump. I get one towed into me one day and it has a brand new power steering pump on it. And a guy hands me the keys and he says, there's no, won't start. So I go through my process and it's not making any fuel pressure. I'm like, start checking. Well, my fuel pump relay has no ground. So anyway, the advisor, he's got a guy out in the waiting room waiting. And he's like, um, uh, I'm like, what is the backstory on this? Oh, was that some other shop and they put a power steering pump in and then right after that power steering pump, it wouldn't start. 
Like, how does one cause the other? That doesn't make any sense. And the customer is now in my bay. He's kind of looking over my shoulder going, so it doesn't need a pump? And I'm like, no, dude. Like, I jump the relay out, and I get the pump to turn on. I go back and make the pump turn on, and I can fire the car up. Well, I don't. I think it's a fuel pump. I'm like, how are you involved in this car? He's like, oh, it's a, it's a friend of mine. I'm like, are you the one that put the fuel pump or the power steering? Pump? No, I didn't put the power steering pump in this. And I'm looking, and you know, the, it's an ignorant thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. There's bolts missing and all this kind of stuff. And so about 45 minutes goes by, and I'm like, there's no ground on the relay. He had broke the wire off. The wire that grounds the relay is right over near the engine mount. Okay. And when he had jacked it up so far, he had busted Ripped that right, right off, slammed it back down, done his pump, and then they <coughs> towed it out. And I remember I felt so bad because it was like, the guy's standing there, and I'm like, well, whatever idiot did this pump <laughs> should be shot in the face because I said half the bolts are wrong, nothing's torqued, this is loose. Meanwhile, the guy that was standing there over my shoulder, he'd been the one that had done the pump in it. <laughs> so he was so invest- invested in what I was doing because he was paying the bill. Okay. He was just some backyard guy that had a tow truck, and then they'd taken the car to him to get a pump done, and then it wouldn't start, and he'd bring them, brought it into the dealership. Wow. You know? So that little backyard excursion of his cost him some money. Yeah. So what? Um, when you think about, you, you know, the YouTube thing, because we hear sometimes we talk about, you know, I introduced you to some people today mm-hmm. that are big on YouTube, right? Um. What do you think about the guys that are on YouTube that are not technicians, but they're doing something in their backyard and they're like, this is how I do this, or this is how I do that, or save money by going, you know, don't go to the dealer and get ripped off. You know, this is how you do a water pump, or this is how you do a phaser in a Ford. Or, right. What do you think about that? I've said it in my own videos where don't take everything I say mm-hmm. as gospel. You know, could I be doing it in a way that's not going to work for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I've watched other people's videos, those people, and it's like most of the time it's not a way I would ever consider doing something. But I guess you really got to watch and understand what people are showing you Mm -hmm. and decide is it something that's going to work for you? Is it something that makes sense? Because some of these people really don't know what they're talking about. There's some people that do it professionally. I wouldn't say that I do YouTube professionally, but right. people that do it like me, and I've watched some people, I won't name anybody, but it's just like, are you I'm talking watching. About, are you talking about Scotty Kilmer? <laughs> <laughs> you can say it. Well, listen, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. That guy is 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 a black mark on the industry. Yeah, okay. And anybody that comes to your shop or any shop and says, well, Scotty, Scotty Kilmer says, yeah. immediately show them the door and let them out. Yeah, he's a joke. Yeah. He's an absolute joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I've seen him, and it's just like, I just I, I get floored by stuff he says. It's like, are you really this ignorant? Yeah, you'd love to have his YouTube following. Oh yeah, like it'd be incredible. He must have paid for that. It's the only thing I can think of. I don't. <laughs> I, he he is a a special individual, but and I've never met the man. I, I, I don't never watch his either. videos. It's I can't split. I can't stand listening to him. But I, every once in a blue moon, I'll watch something. Rev up your engines. Yeah. <laughs> you know, next yeah. channel, please. Like, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. He's. I find that that kind of idea of a guy in his backyard or in his driveway, you know, shooting his mouth off, yep. telling people that what a professional does is ripping them off. Yep. I, that's the problem with YouTube and social creators. <clears throat> that's the problem I have with it. 
You but, know, that's why the people I introduced you today, one thing in common with all of them is they're professional technicians. Right. They're guys and gals in the trenches that do this for a living. Yeah, and that's, right? that, that's me. I yeah. do this for a living. Yeah. I do this every day. That's yeah. all I've ever done. Right. But I watched one of Scotty's videos one day, and he said about using uh, oil stop leak in every oil change. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And he's saying, he's basically telling people to use stop leak yeah. on every oil change. Yeah. I, no. <laughs> no, don't do that. Yep. Oh, I, the best one I ever saw is he took the catalytic converter out and ducked it in lacquer thinner and then installed it back in the car. Because that's how you fix 420 DTCs on your Toyota when it's burned some oil and it's got a 420 DTCs. You take the catalytic converter out. He had a little, like, wash basin. He filled that with lacquer thinner, and then he put that cat in it and let it soak in there for a day, and then he put it back in the car. Really? Wow. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And you can sell that, Kenny. You can sell that to your customer as a fix because he does it. So it's a joke that when people come in and they say, well, I saw it on YouTube, right? That that, that it shouldn't take this long for you to do this. Oh, I've gotten people say that to me. Yeah. How do you handle that? I just tell them, you know, what you see on YouTube, if if it's that easy, you can do it. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's not that easy. And it's, I don't, I don't work off of YouTube. Right. Yes, I am on YouTube, but I don't work off of YouTube. Mm -hmm. You know, take what I say with a grain of salt. I'm not telling you, you know, like I said, I'm not gospel. Yeah. You know. What uh, a lot of people, the traction lately has been talking about is um, the, 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 the union strike, right? The Automotive Workers Union um, and the, the parts breakdown that's going to happen as mm-hmm. a result of that. I saw you, you did a video a little while ago. Was it an alternator on a Kia? Or an alternator? Yeah, it was my daughter's Kia. How many what? alternators did it take to get that finally? Two. Two. Yeah, the first, when we got the car home, because she got stuck with it, mm-hmm. when we got it home, uh, the battery light was not on, but it was not charging. I got a brand new alternator and put it in. Now the alternator light was on, yeah. but it wasn't charging. Right. Okay. Now, now that I knew how to do it, I swapped and I put the original one back in just out of curiosity. I was right there. I figured I was going to do it. I put that back in. Sure enough, the alternator light was out, but it wasn't charging. Right. So it's like, okay. I checked everything I had to check because, of course, I really didn't check anything, to be honest with you. I was just like, okay, it's yeah, an alternator. it's an alternator. It's my daughter's car. I got to get it done. You were yeah. working at home with limited yep. tools. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And this is when we first moved into the house. Literally, yep. we were there not even a week. Yeah. I wasn't even unpacked. So um, I went and I got another alternator, and I put that one in, and everything worked out fine. Yep. But we actually had, when I was at the other shop, Joe and Moe's, when mm-hmm. I was there, we had a Lexus um, I forgot what model it was. It's the two-door rear-wheel drive, 2JZ motor. Okay. I forgot what model those things were. We wound up putting three aftermarket alternators in it and two factory alternators in it before we finally got one that worked. Like one of them worked, uh, an aftermarket one worked, and it left for a week and then came back. And, of course, you're second-guessing yourself. Yes. Like, am I doing something wrong here? Am I missing something? It can't possibly be five alternators. It was. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know it was because the customer still came back for other work. Right. You know, and it's just like, how do you explain that to somebody? You know, you're thinking you're buying cheap parts. No, we're not buying cheap parts. You know, the first one or the fourth one was a a Toyota alternator. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Have you run into it with the Fords yet? Where the Fords, you'll get it in their smart charge system or whatever you call it, essentially duty cycle, you know, holds a drag. 
um, Rich that you, I mean, we introduced you to Rich, uh, Ford boss, you know, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's got the record, his own car. I think he went through eight wow. on, a, on like a grand marquee before he finally got one that would both charge and keep the charging light off. Cause he said it was nothing to get one that would charge, but the voltage mm-hmm. regulator sir, signal coming back, the ECM didn't like it and turned the charge light on. Right, I've heard I've heard of that. Yeah. I've actually never had a problem with one. And he was using he was using like he'd use three or four different Ford ones, yep. Motorcraft ones, like he O'Reilly's every part store didn't matter. Yep. It was just whatever they're the rebuilders out there that are building them, whatever they're putting in there, the circuitry for the the, the voltage reg circuit, they don't like it. Yep. They're not accepting it. And uh, he was frustrated. His videos, he he talks about that. That's one of the biggest issues I'm now seeing in our industry is the quality of the replacement parts. Yeah. Terrible. Really starting to hurt us because we're already fighting a battle most days with like accuracy of repair, mm-hmm. competency of a lot of techs in the bays of being able to fix this stuff. And then, like you said, you go and do your due diligence and you diagnose that car properly and you put a part in and it either works or it doesn't. Yep. Like who's you know now you got an upset shop owner, thinking that the tech must have diagnosed it wrong. You got an upset customer because the car's not promised when it was supposed to be. Yep. And and who's at fault here? Well, then it becomes a whole, you know, argument of who 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 screwed up. Well, what is it? What do the parts manufacturers do when it's on them? Hardly anything. You know, yeah. they don't going to pay you for your labor nope. for putting your your daughter's alternator in twice. Nope. Most shops, if it goes through five, they're not getting paid every time. Nope. It's a, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. It really is bad. I tell everybody like, we're going to try the first one we get, and then but you know, after that, uh, I'm not sure how we're going to proceed from this because it's you know I'm not going to continue to try and and eat the labor right. because we can't get a good part. You know, I might call up somebody that I know has a known good one, and I'll probably I put a used part in some of the time now before I'll go and grab a rebuilt part. Oh, I prefer not to use rebuilds anymore. Yeah. It's just there's so many problems with. But those alternators I put on my daughter's car, they were new. Yeah, you know, I I, I specifically don't ask for for rebuilds for that reason because mm-hmm. there's just too many issues. Yeah, I'd like to look at what the definition of a, of a new part is, though, for because you and I know from the dealer days. Mm-hmm. Why were they always wanting those cores back? Because they're selling the cores to a rebuilder. Yep. And I don't mean a local rebuilder. I mean, like, yeah. Chrysler wants the cores back, and then they take all those housings or whatever, and somebody puts, you know, another armature in it or yep. another voltage regulator. But you don't know. that's tech. Is that technically new? Well, like, you I, know. I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> it's really a good question. It's got a new voltage regulator in it, but it's not the one that's supposed to be in it. It's still new, but, yeah. you know... But, but then again, at some point, you have to have enough used parts to to yeah. have remanufactured right. parts. Yeah, and that's remanufactured. I wonder how that even, because I guess they can say, like, we know what a re- remanufactured axle is, for example. Like, we yeah. all know what a remanufactured CV axle is. But a remanufactured starter, well, what's really left? You know, and and if I have a good housing over here, and I put a new armature and a new set of brushes and a new bearing and... Is it is it now technically new? It kind of is. It kind of is, yeah. 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 If the only thing left was the actual housing. Yeah. But it, whatever parts were putting in it still weren't of OE spec. Right. Right? And I think that's where, so when the customer says to me, well, it wasn't a rebuild, it was new. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's the frustrating thing. I almost hate 
you know, a, a call in when it's a, or a, a toe in or a call in when it's like a, a starter or an alternator. Not because I can't diagnose it fast and effectively. Mm-hmm. It's just what am I going to get for a part this time? And it's getting worse now. You know, guys from Dorman are here. You've seen the hate mm-hmm. for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever talked about that, the Dorman stuff? I've actually had very good luck with Dorman. Um, mm-hmm. I did have a problem with something of theirs, but it's like it's few and far between. I've yeah. actually had pretty darn good luck with their yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, but you're talk, talking about used parts, too, that you were just yeah. discussing. Have you noticed, like, you go to tell a customer, okay, well, you just, you know, you need an engine for your car. Well, guess what? An engine's three thousand yeah. dollars, and you know we could find a used one for twenty two hundred dollars, or a remand for three grand, or whatever. And they're like, "Well, I find one online. I can get one off of eBay for eight hundred dollars." Yeah, yeah. I have two experiences with that yeah. so far. And uh, the unfortunate like, thing is, I think what I'm seeing happen is that the price from eBay is from the same kind of vendor that you and I might buy it from. Mm-hmm. But they're paying us, they're charging us $1,800 yep. because they think that we're going to send it back. Yep. Whereas they'll sell it for 800 to somebody with no warranty, no nothing. Yep. And it's the same part. Yep. Right? And we're very much against, like we talk in the Changing Industry Group and ASOG and all that kind of stuff. We're about customer supplied parts. And uh, I'm not going to, you know, if you allow customers to bring you your parts, I'm not going to tell you that's right or wrong. It's it's your business that needs right. Kenny to run it any way you want. Right? Uh, I'm not going to get all high and mighty and say that, you know, it's a disservice to the industry because the shop I just left, they did that, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I said my piece on what I thought was, well, you know, if we charge, if we don't, then we put our margins for this and we actually buy our parts, we can offer something better. It wasn't my business at the end of the day. Right. If we made a little bit more money, we could have bought some better tooling and, you know, might have been able to pay me a little bit more. But you know what? You're the boss. It's your shop. So... But what I've what I've hated is the the fact of you know we let the customer bring us that eight hundred dollar engine yeah. that we know nothing about and we put it in the car and you hit click 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 you're letting the customer dictate the repair dictate the process yep. you've heard me say that yep. you know in some of the podcast episodes and I've even people see my comments pop up in some of the YouTube threads and I think they're not even they're knowing who it is whether it's because I say dictate the process all the time <laughs> I have an old story about a customer supplied engine. 2000 when I was working back in the little gas station there was a guy that came in with a Monte Carlo SS and it was a 1985 Monte Carlo SS and somebody painted it Barney purple (laughs) so it was an SS for sure but it had been painted over with the worst probably a rattle can trim clad Barney purple (laughs) and I'm like it's in for an overheat so I'm like wow so we get into the thing in the in the uh the guy says, um, uh, I don't want heads put on this thing. We knew it was a head gasket. I don't want heads put in this. I already got an engine. So he, of course, then the car, you know, I start the one day I pull the engine into this Monte Carlo SS. And I'm like, this is kind of cool. I was driving a, back home I had a 75 Malibu. Okay. Two-door with a 350 small block in it. So I was kind of familiar with the, you know, that kind of platform, right? So no big deal. Pull the engine out. So take his engine out, put it on the, on the used tire in the corner of the thing. We get his engine jacked in, pull it into the car, hook everything up in it, hit the key. Clunk. Clunk. <laughs> I'm like, uh-oh. So my mentor at the time, Paul, comes over and he's like, did anybody check that engine? Adrian, he's yelling at Adrian. Adrian's the shop owner. Adrian's like, no. We put a bar on the front crank bolt. 
engine seized up. <laughs> so that engine that we just finished bolting into the car. And this, so people are listening. You're going, what a bunch of idiots. Yeah, we were. We were stupid. We let the customer bring us something we never bothered to check. Checkers, never yeah. before we put it in the car. I was just told, go and get Because he was doing it for probably next to nothing. That's why I was the one doing it because they were paying me $11 an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, in 2002 to put a fucking small block, you know. So, of course, we take his engine back, you know, put his engine back in the car, take the heads off it. That three, whatever engine it came out of, we don't ever know what it was. I think they said it was a 350. Had already been bored out 60 anyway. Hmm. So we slapped a set of gaskets in that, slapped the heads back on it, shipped it, kicked it, told the guy, don't ever bring your car back. (laughs) And, uh... I remember he came, brought the car back like six months later, tranny eight out of it, right? And he's like, you guys effed up my tranny. And of course you did. Yeah. And I'm like, we didn't F up your tranny, dude. Like it left shifting, right? Did a little smoky burnout in the parking lot. Like not smoky, but I mean, it's had yeah. a one wheel, you know, one, one wheel, wheel peel. peel yeah. Like it's not going to do much, but it was still, it was a run in SS again. And that's when I learned at a very young point in my career that there's some customers you just don't bother with. Mm-hmm. But I worked for a guy that he he said no to nothing. I was getting paid $11 an hour in 2001. He was running a shop where we were putting on, it didn't matter the quality of the part. If it had a lifetime guarantee, it got that set of brake pads. Didn't matter if they made noise, didn't matter. If we put, if, if the Walker muffler broke off, you know what Walker could mm-hmm. be like, Mm-hmm. junk if the pipe broke off inside the walker muffler we put a pipe in it and the customer got a new muffler because it was lifetime warranty and there was stacks of mufflers with the pipe broken off on the inside because he'd hang a brand new muffler on an old rotten pipe the first time and then do the repair again and again and again it just went on and in in, in, in ad nauseum for that he would pile up all his can't remember the name of the brake pad but there was something out of lifetime warranty and there was a stack by the door that was as taller than i was of brake pads in boxes to go back, and that was his credit for his parts bill for the month. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so that's how we did business, right? We would take so many rotors off. We didn't have a lathe in-house, in and there was a machine shop at the parts store right across the, you know, plaza. They would machine our rotors. So it would be tied up on the bay waiting for them to cut two rotors or cut four rotors. And back then, you could probably buy a rotor for 40 bucks, Right. But the machine shop would only charge you 30 to machine two. It was a it was a shithole. <laughs> but I learned a ton. And they probably gave you a, a really bad cut also. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to look at them. And I remember so many times we would take them off the lathe. We'd put them on the car. It was now 4 o'clock. You drive in the car. Customers waiting to pick it up at 5 o'clock. You go drive it. It's Paul Satan. Yep. So then you got to call up, yell at the parts department over there at the parts store. They send over the cheapest white box junk rotors. Yep. You put it on. The pulsation doesn't pulsate anymore. Customer picks up and leaves with their car. Down the road. And I was like, is this really how business is done? So when I left that shop to go to the dealer, all of a sudden it was like. Your eyes open up. Yeah. Yeah. So when we get into these conversations in the industry where people hate on independence or we hate on dealerships or we hate on independent techs or we hate on dealer techs it's got nothing to do with that where you are under the sign that you work means very little 
It's all about what kind of technician you are, yep. what kind of technician I am, yep. what kind of technician the service advisor or technician, how good's your service advisor? Mm-hmm. What's the culture of your service manager? How does he think? The owner of the shop. Yep. It's got very little to do with where you work. You know, I hate that when people judge, like, because you, you don't go around talking on, on your thing about, I was a dealer tech for 21 years, right? When I saw mm-hmm. you do the first video I ever saw about you, I would have never thought you were a dealer tech. I just thought you were a guy that had always worked on... On cars. On cars. Anything yeah. and everything that came in. Now, you are a guy that can work on anything that ever comes in, but yeah. I would have never thought you had 21 years of one brand. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it was. Uh, we also had GMC there. Yeah. So I did have some GM experience with it. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing at our dealer, it was basically, it was a very family-oriented place. So... And everybody that worked there, a lot of people were there for many, many years. Yeah. And everybody took pride in their work. And then, of course, we would get new techs that would come in and they would do work. And I was just like, no, no, no. You, yeah. no. You're not doing this as fast as you possibly can to make money. Yeah. You're doing this to do the right job for the customer. Mm-hmm. That's how you have to concentrate on it. And they're like, well, I need to make money. I don't care what you need to make. If, if that's the type of person you are, you can walk out the door. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't have that. I, yeah. I couldn't take that with people. And I, was a, I wasn't, you know, I was a team leader, you know, and um, we were basically, the Chrysler side was broken up into three teams. I was one team leader and the GM department, they had one team because mm-hmm. it was just GMC. Yeah. So, but yeah, we, we had a bunch of very good people and it's just, you had to teach the new people that came in, the way you're used to working, change yeah. it. Right. Change it. Yeah. So. Whatever happened to that dealer? Is it still around? It's still around. Yeah. Yeah, like it was a family-run dealer. Uh, it's Meadowland Chrysler, okay, in uh, Carmel, New York, and um, it was a great place. It yeah. really was. Um, I started having my issues towards the end. There It was probably me becoming disgruntled over time because mm-hmm. things weren't going the way I thought they should go. Right. Um, so I and it just it became a point where you know it's just it's time to leave. Yeah. And then my friend who had BNM Auto Body, he was having health issues and he was asking me to come and help him because otherwise he might have to close down his business. Mm-hmm. I decided, you know what, now it's time for a change. Yeah. So that's why I made that change. Where did you get? At what point did you get in? Because I, I heard you talk at one point about the five liter Mustangs and stuff. When did you oh, kind of yeah. get into that? Uh, when I had my shop. Okay. Uh, my shop was from eighty nine to ninety seven. And, um, you know, the five liter Mustang was really exploding. Yeah. And, uh, I just, I purchased an 88 Mustang and, uh, I got caught street racing with it. Mm -hmm. It was all stock, you know, because back then you really, there really wasn't any modifications to do. It was pretty stock and, um, I got caught street racing and that's a pretty hefty fine. And my insurance doubled. So right. I was just like, well, I kind of can't afford this right now. So I got rid of that car. And then in 1990, I happened to see one sitting at this dealership. And I was sitting in a corner, and for some reason, they couldn't sell it. Yeah. So one day, I said, you know what? Let me stop there and just see what's going on with that car. So I wound up making a smoking deal on this Mustang. And I got back into the 5-liter Mustangs. And then when I had the shop, I used to have a bunch of people all of a sudden started showing up. And I actually wound up being in... Uh, Muscle Mustangs and Fast Forwards. Mm-hmm. I wound up being in that magazine six different times. Yeah. You know, working on cars for the magazine. Right. So it was pretty cool. It was, it was a good experience. Some of them got to be pretty fast. <coughs> the one guy that worked... I have terrible allergies. I'm yeah, sorry. It's okay. Um, one of the guys that worked with me, his 
his Mustang, he had a coupe, uh, five liter, five speed, and it would run a 10 in the quarter mile. It was a 1030 and 133 miles an hour. Jeez. And it was street. It was a street car back in 1992, three, four, whatever year that was. That was a pretty darn fast that street car. That was really quick. You know, for a street car, that was yeah. real quick. No you know, turbo back then or no turbo. It's just nitrous. Yeah. You know, but it was, uh, it would pull wheelies and everything else, but he drove it. That was his daily driver car. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty cool. That was the fastest car that we had in the group. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, I had my own cars that were just, they were really not much done to them, just, you know, street cars. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was known for just taking them out and just abusing the daylights out of them. New York always had a, from what I remember, always had a really vibrant street racing scene, right? Yes. Detroit, uh, Detroit uh, New yeah. York, you know, and then California, obviously, like L.A. Yeah. and the big thing. But, you know, when the, when the TV show hit, like, you know, um, Street Outlaws. Yep. You know, and all those guys, nobody knew what Oklahoma was about until they kind of come. But I remember yeah. seeing, I remember growing up and I remember being, I didn't go to the street races that one night because uh, my my Malibu was a dog. You know, the 75 Malibu two-door, two-barrel carburetor, made 140 horsepower when it was brand new. <laughs> yep. The Which everybody's like, that's slow as hell. 1975 Corvette, excuse me, thank you very much. It only made 155 horsepower with a four-barrel carburetor, so... Yep. You all stop hating on my Malibu because that was all I would have needed was a carburetor change, and I'd have been making what the Corvette made in '75. But and right about that same time, the Dodge Little Red Express yes. pickup truck was the fastest production car. So <laughs> I grew up wrenching, or I started wrenching. My buddy has a '77 Warlock, Dodge Warlock. Oh, okay, yep. yep. So which is like a Little Red Express, but without the pipes, right? Yep. Essentially, so all the same, you know, the pinstripe mm-hmm. graphics on the inside yep. and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it, it used to be a 400 truck, and okay. he had a 440 in it, and a, and a, you know, torque flight, and uh, we he put a three inch complete three inch mandrel bend. That was the first mandrel bent system that I'd ever seen, real mandrel bent. Right, like you could you could put the tennis ball in at one end and run yeah, right out the other. Yeah. Um, no mufflers, no cats, <laughs> and um, you know we got. That's where we learned to do Hollies. That's where we learned to, you know, and I can still remember the first time he called me and he says, um, I just swapped my fuel pump and my truck won't start. I'm like, okay. So we go over there and sure enough, there's no fuel pump, there's no fuel pressure. And uh, we're trying to crank it up and crank it up and it's not going. And I'm like, I'm thinking, I've never had a fuel pump off a big block Dodge, but I've had one off my, you know, uh, small block and there's maybe the push rods not there and so we kept cranking and cranking and cranking well eventually it stopped where it wouldn't crank from the key Hmm. we'd crank this thing so much so then we started jumping from the relay and we were dumb we were moving that we didn't know what was going on we just knew that didn't have you know because you pour some gas down the carbon it would light off and burn your eyebrows right off send your arm and we did that for about a couple hours then we went home and he decided he went and ordered like a Holly pump, electrical, put it on to where the you know mm-hmm. that pump was, and and then so then he ended up with too much fuel pressure. But when he took the pump off, he said, "I know why it won't start." I'm like, "Why is that?" He's like, "The push rod wasn't on the lever, you know, it had rolled off to the side or whatever, and wasn't pushing on the lever of the lever, mechanical right? fuel pump." But by then he had, he had then had that that electric pump, and. uh I think the lowest you could get the pressure to go down was like 10 PSI. Which 10, is still still too high. Too much. 
right? We so then he like kept six going. Six or seven, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. And then he kept going to a bigger carburetor, bigger carburetor, bigger carburetor. And we lived in Canada. Well, then he got a he got like an 800 that somebody milled the air horn off. There's no choke. Okay. And I'm like, this is going to be one hell of a street car. So finally <laughs> he got that going where at least it would fire off and start. It ended up we, we burnt a wire going through the bulkhead connector in the firewall. That's why I wouldn't crank from the key. He got a he got a harness from out west and put it in the whole thing. And I remember hearing that car when it finally that truck when it fired up and ran. And that thing was amazing. That was so cool, right? It was so loud. No mufflers on it, just straight pipes, right? And blap uh, blap. And then he put uh, Flowmaster fifties or forties on it way back then, just to quiet it down. Just to just, quiet just it down. Just to take the edge off. Yeah. And uh, what a cool truck that was to drive. Now that truck's got a. An EFI swapped out of a modern Hemi. Oh, okay. And uh, full EFI. But he, he bought uh, Indy cylinder heads put on it. Like, he, he was going full bore with, you know, the whole thing. And uh, that's where I learned. And I didn't love Dodge then, but I thought that truck was cool. So then for me to wind up in the dealership was, like, weird because I'd grown up in a Chevy family. But I can remember he had gone to the races, the unofficial street drags, the one night out my way. And I stayed home, and we had a five-liter Mustang, a guy with a stick, and the clutch came apart. No bell, no bell housing blanket on it, and it, it hit a kid in the leg. Oof. And uh, he was all right, it, he, you know, but I thought, that's not really my scene, you know. Like, I don't, A, I don't have a fast enough car, and B, you know, the street racing thing was just like, you know. We used to go down to uh, Gun Hill Road in the Bronx. Okay. I think it's the Bronx. And... Um, not that we would race, but we would go there to watch. And yeah. and it's like, after a while, you're like, you know what? This is actually, these guys are dangerous. Yeah. These guys are actually dangerous. And I mean, I've seen street racing where, you know, I don't condone it, mm-hmm. but it's just, you could see it like they take precautions and they are careful and they go about it the right way. There's not people around and whatnot. But when we were down there, I mean, this is, our, this is the city streets and it's yeah. just like, you know, somebody's got to get themselves killed doing this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and some of these cars too shouldn't have even been on the road. Right. I can remember that too. Like I can remember batteries in the trunk bouncing around because well, somebody, you know, just. I remember a guy with a tubbed Malibu or a Pontiac Le Mans. Yeah. It was, it was a G body. I remember the guy pulling out and he was doing burnouts and stuff with it. And I realized he had no tubs. So he was getting hit in the back with burning rubber chunks. <laughs> But he made it to the he made it out that night. Yeah, you know what it, I mean. He made it out to have some fun. But it was just like, wow, wow. Yeah. When I but, heard that the clutch came apart and went through the bell housing, I was like, they can actually do that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, eh? Clutch explosions are really wicked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that was the first, and then there was a guy that uh, helped me get my Malibu on the road. He had a he had a '68 big block Camaro with a four speed in it, all original car, and that was pretty cool. That was a pretty sweet car. The fastest thing that scared me, the first thing that ever really scared me, uh, when I was working in Toronto years ago, a guy had a 31 Model A with a 327 and a a top loader four-speed in it. Oh, wow. And that was amazing in Toronto to drive because we're talking 1998. How old is that car already? Right. There's not a whole lot of Ford vintage metal around Canada anymore, and there wasn't even back then. (laughs) And that was his daily. He drove that daily. Wow. And he had a 45-minute commute into Toronto every day, and he drove that car. And he had two friends with uh, Chevelles, 350 Chevelles. <laughs> Everybody wanted to run a four-speed back then. 
And that car was still faster than Chevelle's just because it weighed nothing. Right. And it was it was purple. Something to me about in purple cars. But it was purple and it was the me that a kid had grown up on Hot Rod magazine, that was the coolest thing I'd ever rode in, in my life. You know, the next thing that gave me that exhilaration is a I had an SRT eight Challenger okay. four speed car come in and I got to do the PDI on it. And I drove that and that scared the heck out of me. You know, there's something about that kind of car when the ass end's kicking around yep. and it's going as fast as it's going. It shouldn't go that fast and yep. it shouldn't handle the way it does for the big tubby fat bottom thing that it is. Right. It was just yeah. the coolest thing. I'd driven a Viper and I, I'd take that SRT eight Challenger with a stick any day over the Viper. Just the way it made me feel to drive it. We got, we got one of the first Hellcats in Oh, and uh, it was, it was the manual yeah. six speed and uh I did the PDI on it. And I took it for a ride. I come back, and the sales manager said, what do you think? I said, it needs to lose either brakes, speed, or handling. Yeah. It needs to lose one of them. I said, I'd kill myself in this thing. Yeah. It was way too fun to drive, and I, I, I would push it to its limit. Yeah. I, just, I couldn't own something like that. There's yeah. no way. It's, what do you think <clears throat> about what's going to happen? Because you've heard probably Chrysler talk about the future of what they're going to do, right? It's going to mm-hmm. be straight EV. And you saw yeah. just recently... That demon, right? The demon's kind of yeah. The I, demon one seventy, I think they. Call I think it. they pretty much peaked with the demon. What yeah. that car can do, right? When you think about it, and that demon. Do you see the thing on the demon box where you get the reflash DCU yeah, and you yeah, put yeah. it all in, and essentially it's a nine second street car. Yep. I think they've because now they're talking with Stellantis. They're going to be EVs. The new cars are cool. They don't really impress me, though. I mean, they're impressive in their performance and everything else, mm-hmm. but it's just not its not something I would want to own and drive. It's like yeah. I'd rather have an old hot rod. Yeah. But, you know, it's just me. I'm not, I'm not knocking the cars. Yeah. It's just me. I would rather have, you know, if I went to a car show and I saw a brand-new Demon parked next to a, you know, 71 Demon, yeah. I'll be all over that 71 Demon. Yeah. I had a friend in trade school. He had a Demon. It was parked in a barn I hadn't run in years. Awesome. But that was the first thing I'd ever, like the first demon I'd ever seen. I'd seen okay. lots of dusters, right? But that was the first, you got a demon? Yeah. What the heck's a demon? Oh, it's a duster. Okay, cool. Yep. But I mean, the little graphics and everything, but. The little graphics and the different taillights and. Yeah. But I mean, I was just, I never got to drive an SRT8, but I wanted, like a Hellcat, excuse me. I drove an SRT8. It was yellow. It was ugly as shit. It took them forever <laughs> to sell it because it was yellow. But you know what Mopar people are like, right? We don't care about color. Yeah. Like, Panther pink, you know, mm-hmm. royal purple, all that. Give us that ugly shit. We we love that stuff. <laughs> like, but that car was amazing to drive. But I got the same thing. I got in it. and I'm like, it's got too big a radio screen. Yeah, I want I want crank windows. I want manual locks. Yeah. You know, I don't need the the alloy rims. I want give me a steel with a with a hubcap on it. Give me something like that. You know. And as odd as it sounds, whenever I do drive one of those cars, I actually prefer the automatics. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I like the way they feel over yeah. the stick. I don't know what it is. And I'm a stick person. Yeah. I love stick. Yeah. I think it's just because they're so high horsepower that the the automatic just feels more natural in that car. Yeah, yeah. I drive yeah. a Wrangler, and I, I'm the same thing. I love a stick, but my knee won't do it anymore for, yeah. for a daily. You know, if I had a hot rod, I'd go get one again. But I when I was test driving my Wranglers to buy, I took to, and, you know, I've owned a lot of Jeeps. I like Jeep. It's probably my favorite brand. 
but I, I just was like, I can't, I can't drive this thing to work every day and go through stopping traffic with it with a stick anymore. And it's too bad because it's such an easier platform. Even you know, yeah. I can put a clutch in for two hundred bucks if I need right. to, right? If that transmission decides it needs an overhaul, I'm in a fair chunk of change. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I just then he won't do it. But if I had a hot rod tomorrow, man, I'd still go right back to a five or six speed. Oh yeah, all yeah. day. Just, I'm, I'm building a Hornet and my. Oh, aunt, what's my, that like? It's an AMC Hornet, 75 yeah. AMC Hornet hatchback. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to actually put a six-speed in it. Um, not not because I prefer to have the six-speed. I would actually prefer to have a four-speed. Yeah. But I happen to have one. So right. it's like yeah. it's it's going to go in that car. Right. And what um, about for a power plant? Okay, I'm going to irritate some AMC guys, but I'm going to put an LS motor in it. Yes. <laughs> I have a six liter and I have a five three. Yeah. However, I also have an AMC inline six. Um, actually, not. It's a Jeep inline six yeah, yeah. four liter. Yeah, I know. I have a four liter fuel injected with a five speed yeah. from a Cherokee. Uh-huh. I'm gonna. That's up in New York. I got to get that down here. And I kind of want to make the car a mule. I want to like. I want to put the LS in it with the six speed. I want to put the AMC. Mm-hmm in line six or the four liter, I should say yeah. with the five speed in it. Like I want to try a couple different combinations with the car. Just, to just, see. just to see. Yeah. Um, I also have an AMC 401 motor, okay. yeah. but I got nothing to go behind it. I could put the six speed behind it with the right bell housing. Yeah. I could even put, believe it or not, that, um, that five speed that's bolted to the four liter will bolt right up to mm-hmm. that AMC 401. Should, yeah. So there's a couple of different things I want to do to it, but that, the five, three, and six liter is going to be the predominant. That's what that's what's actually going to get. They're done a lightweight right. car too, a Hornet, aren't they? Yeah, it's like a Duster. Yeah, I think it's a little bit lighter than a Duster. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk about cars that got swapped. My dad. Now this was back when I had my shop. Uh, I had purchased a wrecked five liter Mustang. It was a brand new car, mm-hmm. and it got totaled. And I bought it from the wrecking yard, complete. And I think I paid fifteen hundred dollars for it. It was nailed in the in the passenger side, right? But it still ran. It was an automatic car, and um, but I bought the car. I disassembled it, and in the corner of my shop, I had the engine and transmission just sitting there. So my vo- my father had a Volvo two forty turbo wagon. You know where this is going. Oh yeah. And uh, he had a severe oil leak in it. So I'm looking at the car, and I'm like, okay, well the rear main seal's leaking, the front main seal's leaking. The head gasket's leaking, the valve cover gasket's leaking, the turbo's leaking, everything's leaking. Sounds like a Volvo. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to pull this thing apart. I'm going to pull the motor out, and I'm going to reseal it. So I pulled the motor and tranny out as an assembly. And I happened to be staring. The idea to do this swap was never there in the beginning. But I had the engine (sighs) and the tranny on the hoist, and in the foreground, I could see the, or in the background, I could see the engine and tranny, the five liter sitting there. And I'm looking and like the dimensions are the same. Yeah. So I walk over and I actually take a really good look and I'm like measuring stuff. I'm like, huh? So I put the Volvo motor to the side and that was that four cylinder. I pick up the five liter and I go and I dropped it right in place and it fit like a glove. Yeah. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is never coming out of here. I never took it back out. I actually made mounts and everything else to fit it into the car like that. I had uh, the AC working. I had the power steering working. Wow. I had everything working and the fuel injection. Yeah. And this was 1994, I think. Wow. I did all of this. 
and I drove it back home and I pulled it in the driveway. It had single exhaust still, but it was like a three inch single exhaust or big, one of those big flow masters because I yeah. wanted it quiet because my dad didn't like noise. Yeah. So uh, I pulled it in the driveway and I said, I want you to take it for a ride. He goes, why? He goes, didn't you just fix it? <laughs> and I had the car a month. Yeah. He goes, didn't you just fix an oil leak? I said, yeah, I did a little more than that. So he's looking at me like, what the hell did you do to my car? So he goes out there and he starts it up. As soon as he starts it, he looks at me. <laughs> like, you got to be kidding me, right? Yeah. yeah. So, because you could tell, even though it was quiet, you could tell. Oh, yeah. So he takes it, he comes back from his road test. He comes back with a grin on his face. He goes, okay, nice work. And then he walked in the house. That's all he said. He didn't even look underneath the hood. About two months later, now he used to commute with that car. Yeah. He commuted 55 miles one way to work. Wow. So... He's commuting with this car. After about two months, he comes up to me. He says, do you know, he goes, that thing gets better gas mileage now than it did before. <laughs> That's awesome, Kenny. That is awesome. Yeah, that was, that was a fun car. Yeah. And on, with that same car, I got busted again for street racing. Because <laughs> so picture this. It was uh, yeah, like 1994, 1995. Um, the new generation Corvette was out at the time. Yeah. I had just gotten a car together. I put a set of M&Hs on the back of it because it would just light up one, one tire mm -hmm. otherwise. Mm -hmm. I went down Central Avenue in Yonkers, New York with this car, and that was a well-known street racing scene. Yeah. I happened to pull up on a relatively new Corvette. And, of course, the guy's not looking at me. The car's quiet. He's yeah. not thinking anything. The light turns green, and I make sure I stay ahead of him the whole time. So we get up to the next traffic light. He starts looking at me, and his girlfriend's in the car. She's looking over like, what just happened? Yeah. Like, we didn't try to race. So I'm not looking at him. My friend's in the passenger seat, and he's trying not to laugh. So the light turns green. He jumps it, and I jump it at the same time, and we're neck and neck. And, like, you can hear him. He's floored. I'm yeah. floored. We get to the next traffic light, and he's looking over like, you're kidding me, right? Yeah. We do it again. On the third time, still neck and neck, all of a sudden we got popped by the uh, Yonkers police. Oh, man. So, uh... The guy's like, you were street racing. I'm like, I'm in a Volvo. <laughs> so, he goes, that's a, I said, that's a Corvette. I wasn't street racing right. him. Yeah. He, he's like, yeah, come on. He goes, I'm not stupid. So uh, he says, uh, he goes, look, he goes, you, after the whole thing, he goes, look, he goes, I'm, he goes, I'm actually pretty impressed. He goes, but he says, I'm going to write you a ticket. He says, show up at court. He goes, you know, your license is clean. He goes, we'll take care of it. You mm -hmm. know. So sure enough, I go to court and. It got squashed, so it, it was pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> the guy in the Corvette was embarrassed, and I actually have a video of it. The funny thing is, after my father stopped driving it, I took it to Englishtown Raceway Park, Englishtown, New Jersey, and I have a video of the car where I actually lined up against a Corvette, and I beat the Corvette, and you can hear the announcer saying, the guy in the Corvette has got to be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kenny, I want to thank you. That's been fun. So well, what do you... um? What do you want to see change? Where where are you headed with the with the Kenny wrenching with Kenny and what what do you want to see change in the industry? What do you want to what do you want to change about what you're doing? Anything? Uh obviously I want to see my channel grow. I'd like to do podcasts more, mm -hmm. you know. Until you and Motormouth Radio reached out to me, which was you know, a couple of months ago. Yeah. I really didn't give it a second thought. I really didn't think much of it and it kind of intrigues me and I, I this is only my second time ever doing anything yeah. like this. Yeah. So it's, you know, I, I get the jitters, but it's like it calms down and yeah. you know, it seems pretty cool. I'd like to do more of this. Yeah. Um, 
I'd obviously like to take my channel to the next level. And, um, but currently, you know, I have to work for somebody else. I don't want to have my own shop per mm -hmm. se. You know, I work out of my house a little bit here and there. Um, I don't do a lot of it because I don't want it to take up family time. Yeah. Uh, as far as the industry goes, honestly, I wish there was more, I don't know if it's, I don't know if regulation is the right word, but like mm -hmm. in the United States, if I picked up a wrench, I could be a mechanic. Yep. So it's like, how do you know that this guy knows what he's doing? You know, to be an electrician, you have to be certified. To be a plumber, you have to be certified. Why not be certified to be a mechanic? This yep. way, you know, you're at least getting somebody that has some knowledge behind them. Because these people that do this job that act like a mechanic... Uh, I hate I hate saying it that way, but you know what I mean. No, I know exactly it, what you mean. It's yep. like they do give a bad bad rap to the whole industry. Yeah, they really do. And you know, we're trying to overcome that. Yeah, you know, you're trying to you know show people that hey, this is not how the industry really is. Yeah. you know, you get a few bad apples that just make it bad for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I we we had that conversation um, this week so many times about regulation and everything else, and a lot of people are hoping that it, we can do it ourselves without involving the government. Cause the, well, know, yeah, not like, I don't mean like involving the government, yeah. but like just, like ASC, I've seen too many people take ASC exams that couldn't screw in a light bulb. Yeah, couldn't fix a sandwich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> couldn't fix a sandwich, right? exactly. Yep. And I, I worked with a guy one time at the, at the first dealership I was at, uh, like I said, I was at that one dealership for one year, and then for the mm -hmm. 21 years thereafter, I was at the other dealership. And I worked with a guy who was ASC certified in everything, and I don't think he could put air in a tire without having a problem. Wow. I mean, just terrible. Terrible. Good at, good at tests, though. Yeah, really yeah. good at tests. Good at tests. Right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. This thank has you, been Jeff. A, a blast, man. I, I didn't know I didn't know what to expect, but I thought it would go really well. Well, thank you. I do you appreciate know, this. Your personality comes through, and it's, it's nice. And you've got that... Lots of good stories, and, and, and I mean, you know, I think you're now, um, I've got one of my most seasoned guests, I guess I would say, with years in. Okay. And I don't mean any disrespect from that, you know no, what I mean? I, it's I, just, I, get, I get you. You know, you've done this a long, long time, and that's why, you know, we need, we interview a lot of young people, but, uh, and I I'm, I don't want to admit yet that I'm older, <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, I got 25 years in, but I mean, it's, it's a situation of, you know, I, I want to everybody's opinion is is valid oh, everybody's yes. story is is relevant and um i want to thank you for coming on and sharing yours with me man i really appreciate it so well, thank you for having me yeah, you're I, very I welcome we'll, we'll do this again at some point for sure and, yeah we uh, could do it remotely too right yeah we can okay. do it remotely and i mean um i'll continue to watch your channel and uh you know anybody that you know that uh, has an interesting story or whatever and they'd like you think it should be shared have them reach out to me man okay it's, i'd love to you know push your platform and get mine out there to more people because yeah, this is the only way we get it to improve, right? Yep. So, yep. All right. We appreciate you. We'll talk all to you soon. All right, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, man. Bye. Bye. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're I very welcome. We'll, we'll do this again at some point for sure. And, yeah, we uh, could do it remotely too, right? Yeah, we can okay. do it remotely. And I mean, um, I'll continue to watch your channel and, uh, you know, anybody that you know that uh, has an interesting story or whatever and they'd like, you think it should be shared, have them reach out to me, man. Okay. It's, I'd love to, you know, push your platform and get mine out there to more people because yeah, this is the only way we get it to improve, right? Yep. So, yep. Hey, if you could do me a favor real quick, 
and like, comment on, and share this episode, I'd really appreciate it. And please, most importantly, set the podcast to automatically download every Tuesday morning. As always, I'd like to thank our amazing guests for their perspectives and expertise, and I hope that you'll please join us again next week on this journey of change. Thank you to my partners in the ASAR group and to the Change in the Industry podcast. Remember what I always say, in this industry, you get what you pay for. Here's hoping everyone finds their missing 10 millimeter, and we'll see you all again next time.